Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. You may have noticed that I'm not Helena or Tom. I'm Alex, and it's great to join you on the other side of the mic. This week, I'm talking to Professor Colin Campbell, a professor of medicinal and biological spectroscopy from the School of Chemistry here at the University of Edinburgh. His research focuses on nanosensors and redox biology, but today we'll be discussing his project, Music About Science. As the title suggests, he's been making music. But just how do you turn DNA, or the spectrum of a compound, into music? Colin wants to share what he's learned and inspire you to keep science creative. Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by Grenier Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. I am Colin Campbell, and I'm the Professor of Medical and Biological Spectroscopy at the School of Chemistry in Edinburgh. And um, what took you down the route to becoming an academic? Oh, um, <laughs> a, I mean, how long have we got? You know, that's a very long story. I didn't, um, didn't initially think about being an academic when I was finishing up my undergraduate studies. I, I did get offered the possibility of doing a PhD when I was doing my final year project, and I said no because I didn't really know whether I wanted to do a PhD or not. And then I went to work as a um, hospital porter, and then I worked as a pizza chef. And that gave me a bit of an opportunity to reflect on life choices and what I might want to do with my future. And I, I did a few interviews and I, I got offered a job in industry at that point. And I thought, well, I don't really think that a job in industry at this stage is what I'm looking for because things seemed relatively limited in how far you could go. And so I thought, well, a PhD where I can, you know, do something interesting and research a topic I'm interested in, that that'd be a good way to use three years. And was that the same PhD or a similar PhD to what you were offered in your final year? No, completely different. It was um, in a field which sort of combined two things that I was interested in, electrochemistry and proteins. And, um, and just, you know, it just caught my eye as an interesting area. We've had pizza chef, a hospital porter, and a little bit of time around industry. Uh, not hearing anything about music yet. Where did the passion for music come in? That's, a, that's another good question. I'm from quite a musical family. And, and because of that, uh, you either are very musical when you're young or you're not because there's no sort of in-between. You, be, you don't want to be rubbish at it if you're not going to be good at it. Um, so in primary two, I tried to get into the choir at school and I was told that I wasn't good enough. Oh no! If, if you understand the standard of a primary two choir, <laughs> my, my singing voice maybe hadn't um, developed sufficiently at that point, or my musical skills. I'm, I'm not. A, I'm not a good singer, anyway, But um, I would have thought a primary two choir, in retrospect, would have wanted me. And when I was. Um, when I, was, when I was still in primary school, I started playing the chanter, which is what you learn to play when you're learning to play the bagpipes. And I played that for a little while, and um, the sort of thing that probably dented my ambition on that front was when 
my auntie Mary said to me, you're never going to be able to play the bagpipes with those little fat fingers of yours. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and, and my enthusiasm waned a bit there. <laughs> Understandably. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't really do much music until I got to the end of secondary school and I started playing the guitar. And I played the guitar quite a lot at that point. Um, I played in a band at university. I, I played in a band um, when I was doing my PhD as well. And, you know, I thought we were pretty reasonable. We got some gigs, played to reasonable sized crowds. Um, when I when I left my PhD, what did I do? I came I came back and worked in in uh, Grangemouth for a little while, and then after I I really didn't like that job because um, it was working in an industrial setting where there wasn't an awful lot of creative creative thinking going on. It was really just do this and tell us what happens and don't bother coming up with your own ideas. So. Then I went to University of Connecticut to do a postdoc. And while I was there, I played the guitar quite a lot. Um, and I started learning to play the bagpipes again. In Connecticut? Um, in Connecticut, yeah, of all places. <laughs> that, it's a sort of expat thing, you know? When you, when you go and live somewhere else, you got all those yearnings for home. <laughs> and so I wanted to play the bagpipes. And so I started playing around with it a little bit. I didn't really take it seriously until um, my, not the next job, which was in London, but the next one after that, when I moved to Dublin, I started playing in a pipe band in Dublin. They were called the St. Lawrence of Hoth Pipe Band. And a lady there, Agnes Kelly, taught me how to play the bagpipes properly. Oh, so was it multiple, is that multiple people playing the bagpipes then? Or? Yeah, yeah, that's like a proper pipe band marching down a road with drums and all that kind of thing. In Dublin rather than in Scotland as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then when I, when I moved back to Edinburgh about um, two years after that, I started playing in a pipe band in Pennycook called the Glencourse Pipe Band. And I played with that pipe band for about 10 years and played in various parts of the world. You know, we went to France, went to Sweden, you know, played it to twos and stuff like that at a great time. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so musically a late developer. <laughs> and are you in a band currently? Yeah, I play in a band with my, with my friend Ken Donaldson. We have a sort of band where we record stuff and we put it up online on a website called Will-O-The-Wisp Studios. We never play live. We only ever just record things and put them on the internet for the world to ignore. <laughs> I saw that you spent some time doing a sabbatical in Boulder. What was that like? That was fabulous. Um, that was 2018, 2019. And I got funded by the Fulbright Commission to go to Boulder for sabbatical. And when I wrote the application to do that, I thought, well, I'm writing an application for a Fulbright Award. I want to go on sabbatical. I should be writing the application to absolutely live the dream as much as I possibly could. So if I, if I was absolutely living the dream, what would I do on my sabbatical? Well, one thing, I would go to Boulder, right? Because it's a really amazing place. Another thing is I would, I would try and tie in some way of making music into it. And I thought, well, how am I going to sell this to the Fulbright Commission? making music on a sabbatical when I'm a scientist. I thought, well, I'll just tell them I'm going to make music about science. 
And I, I know it's a very thorough process, the interview process for Fulbright um, Awards. And in the interview, they asked me to talk about what I was proposing. And I talked about the, you know, the three things I was proposing. I want to learn some things in tissue engineering. I want to do some best practice in education. And I wanted to make some music about science. And the head of the interview panel said, after I had done my sort of introduction, well, one of those things is not like the others. <laughs> and so it made me stand out. You know, it was a, it was a thing that people looked at and thought, oh, I've not seen that before. And was there something you'd thought about previously and happened to include? Or was it something that you've been thinking about for a while? I had thought about the the idea about of it in the sort of big sense, but not really what it actually meant. You know, I thought about you know the idea that well, there's you know that David Bowie song about the guy who goes into space, and there's that um, there's that Flaming Lips song about the scientist and um, race for the prize, but I didn't really think how do you make music about science or how do you make engaging music about science. I just thought, oh yeah, I'll tell them I'm going to make music about science. And, and they believed me. <laughs> when they offered the, um, the Fulbright Award to me, I sort of scratched my head and said, well, I've said I'm going to make music about science. I know how to make music and I know how to do science. But I know how to cook and I know how to ski, but I can't ski about cooking. You know, there's a... <laughs> What's the, what's the connection between music and science? How can you tie those two things together? And I thought, well, there's probably a couple of different ways. One of them is you could just get some words about science and then try and write a bit of music around it. And that's, that's possibly the most entry-level way of doing it because it's, it's, it's using two things that already go together. You know, poetry already goes with music. And so it's just a case of finding the right bit of poetry and writing the right bit of music that goes with it. The other bit, which was more complicated and required a lot more learning on my part, was the idea that you could take scientific data and turn it into music, which you would want to listen to. And that is difficult. And so how did you start a project like that? I, I started with the first one. The first one was easier, you know. Uh, I, went, I went around to Ken's one night before I went off to Boulder. And I said to Ken, well, you know, I've said I'm going to do this music about science stuff, but I haven't really thought about what I'm going to do. And I told him, you know, the two things that, that I just described to you there. And we have a friend, uh, Peter Nardini, who is a poet, an artist and a musician. Sorry, I said to Ken, Ken, will you ask Peter to write a bit of poetry about science? And then we'll just put some music around it. And Ken said, yeah, I'll ask Peter, all right, yeah. And so Ken asked him, and, he came, and Ken came back to me and said, I asked Peter, and he said, no, I can't do that because I don't know anything about science. And then Peter went away and had a couple of glasses of wine. And the next day, lo and behold, there was a bit of poetry about science. <laughs> so we took that bit of poetry and wrote a bit of music that would sort of envelop it and try and um, be sympathetic to it, but also build on it a little bit. And so that was how you came up with Atomic Love Poem? Atomic Love Poem, yeah, exactly. The, the, the thing that, um, that Ken's told me many times about Peter is that every song or every bit of poetry that Peter writes, no matter how it starts off, it always ends up 
as a love song or a love poem. So <laughs> atomic love poem is no different in that regard. Starts off being about science, but if you listen to it all the way through, you'll see where the love aspect comes into it. And so was it after that one that you tried to develop making the music out of the science? Yeah, when I, when I went to Boulder, I had the opportunity to spend some time thinking about that and thinking about what it meant. That, that's when I started getting data and playing around with it and trying to turn that data into something which was music. And that is difficult. Because I, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why it's difficult. Because I thought, well, I'll turn data into music by, let's say, um, taking a sequence like a DNA sequence and just turning it into notes. But DNA only has four bases, and four notes are not very interesting. And so if you just turn those into, um, if you just turn the bases of DNA or RNA into notes, you're struggling to hear something interesting in it because that because that's not music. And similarly, if you take um, a spectrum like a like a Raman spectrum or an infrared spectrum, where you know peaks go up and down and up and down, if you turn those into notes just by saying, okay, well, it's just numbers, so every number will just give a note value to. If you turn those into notes, it's not music either. What you're doing there is called sonification. It's it's, it's taking data and turning it into sound. That's when I had this sort of breakthrough realization that sound and music are not the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's the tricky part. And and I I learned a lot of things, you know, with um, with the sonification of RNA. And I I made a bit of bit of music where I sonified or turned turned it into music. In fact, there should be a word for that, like musified, (laughs) where I musified an RNA structure. And you know, RNA is the cousin of DNA. It's made it's made of four bases in the same way that DNA is. But rather than being a linear strand, the way that you think of DNA, it actually coils back and it makes loops and hairpins and it makes more complex three-dimensional structures. And that's why RNA has things like catalytic properties. It can actually catalyze reactions because it can make a complex three-dimensional structure. So I got the, the structure of this, um, this RNA molecule called RNAs P, which is crucial to all free living life forms on the planet. And I thought, well, that'll be a good one to turn into sound and try and make music from. It's also the molecule that my wife studied during her PhD. So, so I thought that'll be good because if I need to ask any questions about it, she'll be able to tell me the answer. But it, <laughs> it also put the added constraint onto it that it became a genuine labour of love because I had to make it really good. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise I would be tainting the memory of RNA's P for her. So I thought, you know, you've got this RNA and it's got four bases, C, G, A and U. And I looked at them and I thought, well, how am I going to turn these into notes? And you'd be surprised it took me quite a long time to figure this out because I thought about it from first principles and I thought, well, there's only four, there's only four bases there and a bit of music made out of only four notes might not sound that interesting. But I realised a lot of um, folk music comes from a pentatonic scale and that only has five notes in it. So five and four are not that different. And I thought, so if I impose C, G, A and U onto a pentatonic scale, how would I do that? 
And I looked at it and I thought, okay, well, I could make the C a C. I could make the G a G. I could make the A an A. And what am I going to do with the U? Well, I'm going to make that a D just because, right? So I've got four out of the five notes of a, of a C pentatonic scale covered by my RNA basses. So I thought, what's going to feel like if I am sitting on this RNA structure and zooming along it? and playing a different note on my guitar every time I get to a different bass. And, and I sort of superimposed myself onto the, onto the RNA molecule, passing every single bass, playing a different note. And the thing about RNA is, like I said, it has this complex three-dimensional structure. So some bits are double-stranded, where the molecule has looped back on itself and bass paired and made a bit of double-stranded RNA. And I thought, well, I'm going along this strand, but there's a bit of RNA over there going in the opposite direction. Should I not be playing that as well? And I thought, well, it's going in the opposite direction. So what I'm going to do, and this is a good thing about using technology, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the sequence of that strand, but then I'm going to reverse it in the software so that it sounds like a, ba a backwards playing guitar, right? So when you're listening to the bit of music, you can hear the, the structure going forwards, but when it's secondary structure, you can also hear the structure going backwards at the same time, because you can hear a guitar playing backwards at the same time as a guitar playing forwards, which is not only a good representation of the structure, but it's also harmonically more interesting to listen to than just the four notes. So that's how I sort of got the structure incorporated. But then you've got to think about, well, also, what is music? The thing that makes music sort of catchy and accessible is that it's repetitive and the, the RNA strand of RNA's P is, has not been designed in a way to be in any way repetitive but because I'd written the, the bases into the scale of C I could put chords that went along with it and the chords could be repetitive and it would make the listener think that the music was repetitive because the chords were repeating even though and, and there's parts in it where I think there's a, there's a refrain in the RNA sequence data that's, that I've heard before, but it's not. It's not there. It's just a trick. It's because the chords are telling you that. And the other thing that, that I realized at that point is that if you just give all, all the notes the same sort of loudness, velocity it's called in the, in the software, if you give them all the same velocity, then it doesn't sound like a musician playing because musicians do not play all the notes at the same volume. They play it in a sort of dynamic way. And a dynamic way depending on on a lot of things but especially on the time signature so what, once i decided on the time signature chords in there i could change the velocity of the different notes and then make that much more sympathetic to the chords so that when i'm listening to it at least i can sort of start to hear on the basis of the velocity and the chords where things are changing and things are going to turn around and it becomes a sort of more complete bit of music and so those are the sort of the bits of the musical mind that go in to stabilize the sonification of the data and make it sound more like music. And which piece can we hear this in? It's in the um, piece called RNA's P. You can also see an animation that goes along with it. If you look on the School of Chemistry YouTube site, there's a bit of animation which shows you the whole three-dimensional structure of the RNA's P molecule and shows you all the way around it and the whole sort of complexity of it. You have another piece of music on DNA called Frameshift. How's that one different? Oh, Frameshift, of course, yeah. You, 
I had almost forgotten about frame shift. I'm glad you reminded me. Um, it was sort of built around the idea of of making a bit of music about a scientific idea, not not even about the data, but about the the scientific idea. This goes back to that you know that point where I was in Boulder and thinking about trying to turn um, nucleic acid sequences into music, and the idea that you, you just come up with a a whole load of notes and you're, you're not in any way looking at it as a bit of music because you don't know where it starts you don't know where it repeats all that sort of stuff and so i thought well you know there are some parallels between music and dna because dna we just represent it as a as a string of letters and music we just represent it as a string of letters and i realized that dna when it's being used to code for a protein the arrangement of the of the of the bases makes a difference because they're um, assembled into little groups of three bases called codons, and each codon codes for an amino acid. So if you have a string of um, of bases where they're each in this sort of little three-letter word, it depends where you start reading it. Because if you start reading it on the first letter, you're going to get one particular codon. If you start reading it on the second letter, you'll get a completely different sequence of codons. And if you start reading it on the third letter, another sequence of codons altogether. If you start reading it on the fourth letter, you'll be back to the same sequence of codons that you got from reading it on the first one. And I thought, well, if I was to write a bit of music and make the listener start listening to it on a different note, would they experience it differently? And so I wrote this little bit of music, which is, I mean, it's a super simple melody based on three chords and just played the melody on the piano and the chords went along with it. You know, the chords were um, G, C, D, C. And those are the chords which were represented by the notes that I played. And in molecular biology, there's a, th there's a thing called a frame shift mutation where if, you're, if the machinery that's making the protein starts reading on the wrong base, it will make a protein of the wrong sequence, right? It puts it all out of, all out of frame, basically, and, it's, and it, it makes a, a protein which is, to all intents and purposes, complete garbage compared to what it should have made. So, yeah, frame, frame shift is just around that idea that it makes, even, a, even in a linear sequence of notes or a linear sequence of DNA, it makes a difference where you start. One of your other pieces, uh, Footballs in Space, uh, is about molecules called Buckminster Fullerenes. Uh, could you tell me a bit more about what those are and why they're important? Footballs in Space is uh, it's one of my favourites. Uh, it was such a great journey making it because um, I spoke to my colleague, Eleanor Campbell, about the the idea of making music from science, because I had done a lot of stuff with biological data, right? And I wanted to do stuff with, you know, more physical chemistry data. And so I said to Eleanor, you know, what could we do? And she said, well, you could get the, you could get the spectrum of C60 plus and try and turn that into, into music. And I said, okay. And we got the, we got the spectrum from Ewan Campbell, who's a, another one of our colleagues in the department. And with the help of Claire Hobby, Claire helped me write a, well, Claire helped me write a bit of code. That's not true. Claire wrote a bit of code, right? <laughs> <laughs> which, um, which 
allowed us to put the spectrum in and just get a string of of um, of notes out. So it it was really really sort of made that process of turning um, data into notes much easier. You know, and, and I could say, well, I want it to be in C major, for example, and it would come out in C major. So it's a really handy bit of code to have around. So we got this spectrum of C60+, plus, which is the, I think it's the only molecule which has been identified in interstellar gas clouds. Could be a really important molecule in outer space, but it could also, and Eleanor has a research project on, on this ongoing at the moment, could also be an important molecule in, in the very start of life on the planet. You know, as a carbon source, from, from exploding stars raining down onto a barren planet. It could form the source of carbon for life to evolve. So we took the spectrum of C60 and turned it into, into sound, as I said, and used it to make this bit of music called Footballs in Space. And it's the, it's the one where I have taken the spectrum and done the greatest number of things with it in one particular recording. Like at, at the beginning, it's the sort of background static of the, of the piece of music. When the piece of music actually starts and you can hear the saxophone and the drums playing, that's also the spectrum of C60. Almost everything in the music, apart from one little bit of um, jiggy sounding kind of melody in the middle of it, is the only thing that I added to sort of give it a, an extra little bit of musicality. All the rest of the, the melodic stuff comes from the spectrum of C60+. And when, it, when I was making it, um, I was talking to my friend Eamon Coyne, who also has a PhD in chemistry, but he's a professional banjo player. He's a really fantastic banjo player. He's helped in the project, adding a bit of extra musicality to it. And I said to him, well, I've got this C60 um, spectrum, and I'm going to turn it into music. And he said, oh, C60. Well, maybe you should do it using a C6 chord. And so... I wrote the chords resolving around a C6 chord. So C6 is in there representing C60. And I thought, well, what time signature am I going to make this bit of music in? And I thought about C60 because it's, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, it is a sort of football-shaped molecule. And like footballs, it has six-membered rings and five-membered rings. That's the sort of characteristic feature of a C60. And I thought, well, six-membered rings and five-membered rings. Six plus five is 11. So I'm going to make it in 11-4 time, which is a sort of crazy time signature to play around with. But I thought it, it will really have the character of C60 if I make it in this, this crazy time signature. And to be honest, it's not that crazy a time signature. When I, I've never heard anything else in the 11-4 time. It's sort of like a, like a jig time because it goes... One two three, one two three, one two three, one two, and then it repeats all over again. So a lot of it is sort of one two three sounding, which is what what jig time is. That's how that's how the footballs in space bit of music came together from from just getting uh, an absorbance spectrum of this molecule found in interstellar gas clouds. And Ewan Campbell, by the way, I think he was the in the team of the of people who first identified C60 plus in interstellar gas clouds. So that was really a big thing. And now he's, st now he's studying it more in the lab in Edinburgh, but being able to have the access to that high quality data meant we could do something really interesting with it. And with the C60 um, footballs in space, I managed 
to enlist a animator from the College of Arts to make a bit of animation that goes along with it. So she made a bit of animation that sort of shows the life cycle of C60 from when it's born in a, in a dying star, being spat out of a dying star into interstellar space, to then, you know, dancing around an interstellar gas cloud, to then finishing up, raining down on the surface of a planet and seeding life. She made that great bit of animation that goes with it, which you can also see on the School of Chemistry YouTube channel. And her name is Matilda Nelson. She's a really great animator who's just finished her art degree. What was the motivation behind your piece, Sweeping the Sky? I wanted to work with students in Boulder when I was over there, and I was being hosted in a research lab by a professor, Christy Anseth. And, and I thought, well, how could we sort of incorporate some of the research from Christy's lab and make something that sort of goes along with it? So I talked to some of the students. I talked to in particular to Anouk, a student who was looking at um, stem cell morphology. And we got some of her data, which were images of stem cells. And, you know, an image, whether it's a photograph of a family holiday or a picture of a stem cell, is just lots of pixels of different intensities. So if you draw a line across it and look at the intensity of all the pixels in the line, you get something that goes up and down and up and down and up and down. So I changed that into music by just saying, you know, this intensity is going to be this note and that intensity is going to be that note. And we made a bit of music that sort of followed the intensity of the picture going from the cytosol of the stem cell across the nucleus and back to the cytosol. And again, you, you know, use the same kind of tricks of finding the right chords, finding the right time signature, playing around with the notes to make it um, sound more like music. And then adding a couple of little musical phrases in there as well. And, and what I did with that one, which I, which I thought was a good way of um, a good way of monopolising on the people who were working in the lab, was I got this bit of poetry by a lady called Diana Henry, who was the poet in residence in the School of Chemistry, probably back around about 2010, 2012 or something like that. And she'd written this bit of poetry about Caroline Herschel, who was the first ever woman to be paid for doing science on record, right? So she, she wrote this bit of poetry called um, Carolyn Herschel's CV. And so we used that as the bit of poetry to go with the music. And I got as many of the female students in the lab and also Christy to record the poem. So all of them recorded the poem, and then I took little bits of each of them and tried to splice them together to make the poem, you know, flow through the whole bit of music. And and the bit of music all comes from Anouk's um, image of stem cell morphology. That's an amazing combination of aspects there. Yeah, squeezed a lot into that one. <laughs> what have you got planned next for your Music About Science series? I would like to have an event. Once we know what social distancing is going to look like after September, I would like to plan an event where we can celebrate the fairly significant birthday of the Joseph Black Building, which was actually this year, 100 years of the Joseph Black Building was this year, but because, because very few people have access to it, we couldn't really celebrate it in the way that I would like to. But I think as, as access increases, I would like to have an event where we can use the pieces of music that I've made 
to showcase some of the science in the Joseph Black building and, and maybe connect with an audience of the public which wouldn't who wouldn't necessarily want to come to a science event normally, but might come in this case because it's got a sort of musical aspect to it that might make the science a little bit more accessible. That's what I would like to do next. And so within that, you know, there's probably making some other bits of music, but it would also be nice to have bits of visual art to go along with all of the bits of music that we have. And we have animations that go along with a lot of them. But, you know, things don't always have to be animated. It could be a photograph. And it could be a photograph from anyone in the school who, who's seen something that catches their eye in the department. It could be, you know, it could be a bit of poetry that's inspired by something in the department. It could be a haiku. It could be really simple, you know, it could be a little sketch. But it'd be nice to have things that are engaging in that way that could start a conversation with the public in a way that we don't normally start a conversation. I love how you're using science in this creative way and reaching out not just into your area of chemistry, but into other areas to try and make something new and different. Do you think it's important for scientists to stay creative? I think it is absolutely crucial for scientists to stay creative. And I sort of regret that we don't tell undergraduates that earlier. You know, we don't really. Because all of the big ideas, all of the great things in science come from creative thought. It's, it's creative thought which is built on rigour, but it's still creative thought. I think we could maybe try, and maybe I, sh maybe I should try, to have more creativity in the undergraduate programme. So while all the young scientists listening are sitting at home wondering how they can get involved in something like this, what would be your recommendation to them about how they could get started making some scientific music? My recommendations would be either think about some science and make a bit of music about it, or make a bit of music and try and shoehorn some science into it. <laughs> it, it it's as easy as that. And, and if they would like to be involved in the... Um, in the project that we have running in the school, then they should just drop me a line, send me an email, and I'd be very happy to help them if they're having trouble developing ideas. We have access to a collaborative music making software called Soundtrap, where you can make music online collaboratively. You can make tracks, put them together using virtual instruments and stuff like that, or you could just record normal instruments into it. Um, I can give people access to that if they want to make some music about science. And if, and if somebody's at the stage of thinking, well, you know, I want to make music about science, but I don't know how to, then let me know and we'll sort out a Zoom or Teams call or whatever and, and talk it over. And you, not everybody has to create something, you know. Some, some people can, um, if they're not happy composing, they could be playing on, on someone else's track because playing real instruments is what a lot of electronic music misses. And it, it misses that sort of human touch by not having real musicians on it. So I think in, in the stuff that I've made up, to, up till now for the project that we're doing, it'd be nice to have more real musicians playing. So if you, if you can play an instrument and you want to be involved, then let me know. Are you going to be doing anything for World Music Day yourself? I'm going to be listening to this podcast. Great answer. <laughs> Many thanks to Colin for coming on the show. It was great hearing how he's incorporated creativity and music into his work, even though he didn't make it into the choir at primary school. 
If you'd like to contact Colin to start making your own compositions, you can find him at colin.campbell at ed.ac.uk. And if you'd like to check out the pieces you heard, head over to the Chemistry Edinburgh YouTube channel for their playlist, Music About Science. And there's one more thing I'd like to ask you. Would you be interested in making a new intro and outro theme for this podcast? We'd love to feature some local talent to play us in and out of each episode. You can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com. And you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. If you would like to be featured on the podcast, please get in touch and keep an eye on our social media for more information. This episode was hosted by me, Alex Bailey, with guidance from Helena Cornu. The podcast manager is Tom Edwick. The podcast logo was designed by USI Chief Editor, Apple Chu. And the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro and outro themes are edited from music by Colin Campbell. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep it science.